The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, uh, in the studio with my producer, Ricky Herrera. Good Monday morning, Ricky. Hey, Vic, the weather that we're having, is this why it's so expensive to live in California? Perfect weather? Well, I don't know if I'd call it perfect. That's subjective because I I love the rainy um, rainy season that we had this year because I don't like monotonous heat all the time. And it's already a little bit too hot for my taste. <laughs> but I know but I know I'm, I'm in the minority and most people really enjoy uh, the heat and sunshine and all of that. And as do I, but just not year long. I like four seasons. I'm doing great, Vic. How's everything on your end? You know, today's a big day. It's the 108th anniversary of the Armenian genocide, a genocide that happened uh, during World War One by the Turkish uh, Ottoman Empire, which Turkey has not uh, taken any responsibility for it. It keeps denying it. There's a state-sponsored campaign uh, denying it, despite pretty much every historian and scholar uh, having written, published, uh, and affirmed and confirmed about the genocide. And over 30 nations have formally recognized the Armenian genocide. Turkey continues to uh, deny it. Uh, and of course, in 2020, uh, Turkey helped Azerbaijan to unleash another genocidal assault on the Armenians of Artsakh, formerly known as Nagorno-Karabakh. It's sort of unfathomable that we're going through this again and the 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 importance of the recognition of not just the Armenian genocide, but all genocides uh, is even highlighted today. And so I want to do a let's get blunt later uh, and talk about what our nation, what our president has done and hasn't done about it. But in the meantime, I just want to mention one more thing. Uh, speaking of uh, sort of this assault on Armenians, uh, some of you know recently uh, there's been a lot of anti-Armenian uh, racist hate acts, defamation, propaganda in Beverly Hills, in Glendale, other parts of LA. And with my nonprofit organization, Truth and Accountability League, uh, we have a town hall in Glendale on Thursday, May 4th, at the Glendale Central Library from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, with uh, elected officials and experts to discuss this. It's a, it's a free event open to the public with RSVP through Eventbrite. The mayor of uh, Glendale, Glendale Police Chief, uh, will be there as well as uh, Commissioner uh, Sam Kabushian. And uh, we have the chief of staff of DA, George Gascon, uh, as well as the executive director of the LA County Commission on Human Relations, uh, which has partnered with uh, the Truth and Accountability League, or TAL, and their program, which is LA versus Hate. So that is on Thursday, May 4th, uh, at the Glendale Central Library. Uh, for more information, you can go to truthandaccountabilityleague.org. I just want to put that out there. Yeah, very important day today. I just got to commend you, Vic, for for standing up for for all the work you do 
bringing this to light, keeping it in the light. Absolutely. I mean, despite the fact that United States finally recognized the Armenian genocide, um, as have France, Canada, Italy, Germany, Switzerland, and many others, two of the, the major nations that you would think would recognize it, uh, Great Britain and Israel, are yet to recognize the Armenian genocide, which I think is uh, extremely unfortunate uh, and hypocritical. Um, so that's where we are in 2023. The recognition of genocides is very important because there are other genocides happening in the world that are not getting much attention, such as Yemen and Ethiopia, among others. So we've just got to keep uh, talking about it. You have to. So yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the Armenian genocide in my Let's Get Blunt later on, but we can talk about some... Uh, some news items, uh, such as the judge who is uh, in hot water. Uh, this is the judge that, uh, you know, who issued a nationwide ruling blocking the approval of a common abortion medication. You know, he is accused of redacting key information from his legally mandated financial disclosures. It's something that legal experts are describing as a very unusual move, this concealment. Uh, of his personal fortune. So there it is, you know, dirty money, allegedly, in, uh, in, in the court system and judges and having to do with abortion, you know, shocker, right? Yeah, who's to say that financial gain would only penetrate Congress and stuff to figure that it would penetrate our judicial system? No surprise at all. It's everywhere. We've, we've seen this in Europe, too, and other nations. Uh, it's commonplace. So more shall be revealed. Oh, I'm sure. This is one of those topics that will never go away. Exactly. Exactly. Follow the money. But let's talk about something you're passionate about. Uh, Twitter just uh, keeps making headlines. Yeah. And I don't even have Twitter. I, I just find this whole thing pretty interesting. Uh, we all know when Elon Musk put in a bid to buy the company and eventually tried to back out, it got into the courts. And Elon Musk was essentially forced to buy the company. And so he did. Everyone knew that things would change with Twitter because Elon Musk is a, a polarizing guy. And last Friday, there had been rumblings about verification, how that process was going to be a way for the company to make money. Elon Musk has said it himself. He is going to do everything he can to make Twitter profitable. So... On Friday, they they rolled out uh, a new verification process where you have to pay $8 to be verified. And some high-profile people lost their blue checkmark, the coveted blue checkmark mm -hmm. that before uh, last Friday, it was free. I'm sure you would have a little more information on how people were verified before Friday, before you had to pay $8. Some yeah. pretty high profile people like Beyonce, Oprah lost their blue check marks. And, as well as uh, organizations, major governmental organizations, uh, corporations, you know, pretty much everybody that. Yeah, uh, Trump. Well, <laughs> yeah, Trump. <laughs> well, as someone whose who's social media handles are verified, I'll tell you this it's good to be verified because uh, others can't duplicate. Um, your profile and cause havoc. And, and that's why, you know, celebrities and such uh, covet the, the check mark 
of course, I've been verified as a journalist. And so uh, until now, the way you got verified on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc., was you uh, presented uh, your documents uh, saying, you know, you are, I'll just use me as an example, um, submit my press credentials, uh, etc., they want to see uh, articles and reports and stuff that you have published with your byline, press association cards, et cetera, and other information. And then they they go through that and audit it. And that's how you get verified. So, you know, celebrities would go through a, a similar uh, mechanism. Uh, of course, it wouldn't be the celebrity submitting it. It'd be their assistant or publicist. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a good thing. But I do see, I have to say... And I have to think about this a little bit more. But at the end of the day, you know, Twitter is a is a for-profit company. And so I I don't know if I necessarily disagree with Elon Musk on this issue where he says, okay, you know, you want to be verified so you can you can have privacy and safety and uh make sure that that your fans or whatnot know it's you. And others can't just uh, create, you know, a secondary handle and pretend that it's you. But, you know, it's a small fee. Pay for it. Listen, it's not a charity. It's not a nonprofit. It's a for-profit company, and he's doing what's best for, for his company. We'll see. Copy that. Before we talk about the fund drive, Vic, uh, can you share with everyone? Last Thursday, uh, KPFK and yourself. Uh, held a screening for Motherland in Burbank. How'd that go, man? Yeah, it was um, it was um, it was cool because I've done this so many times. There have been premieres of Motherland in different nations, and I've been so, so many screenings of it. This was the first time that it was on a soundstage, <laughs> so that was pretty cool. And then it was cool to meet uh, KPFK listeners who who had obviously who'd, who'd been listening to the show but I'd never met. And to get their feedback, it's always really cool to to see other people's reaction and feedback and perspective on the film and what's happening. Uh, and I'm grateful for uh, KPFK and our, our station manager, Michael, uh, who uh, put it together as well as help from um, so many volunteers. So yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a nice evening. Yeah, props to the whole KPFK crew. As I just mentioned, the station is in FunDrive, and just as Vic was talking about, uh, KPFK, so cool of them to screen this film, to put on an event like this that connects the listeners to, to our programmers. KPFK is a unique organization. It's a unique radio station with only one aim, and that's to bring you information that you don't hear anywhere else. I'm not exaggerating either. Like... Seriously, big media outlets, they don't talk about the things we talk about for the most part. Sometimes they do, sometimes we do, but for the most part, people like Vic, other programmers on this station, talk about and share information that you're not going to get anywhere else. And that's why we need your help to stay on the air. KPFK is listener-sponsored radio. And as you know, as you've done many times in the past, You've donated KPFK to keep us on the air because we can't do it without you. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know what I what else I could add to that. But, you know, if you're listening, chances are, you know, KPFK, you've listened to us for years, you've supported us, and we're grateful for that. 
we do not take uh, money from questionable organizations, grants. Uh, we don't have commercials. So we operate uh, with, you know, by the generosity of our listeners. We're listener-sponsored. And so we rely on you to keep us uh, going, to, to help us to grow and to thrive uh, in, a, in a media landscape that's filled with uh, propaganda and uh, gag rule and uh, gatekeeping, uh, something that KPFK has uh, has avoided. And that's why we're able to be so uh, unfiltered and honest and, yes, blunt uh, on this show. So please go to kpfk.org, uh, make a donation. There's a list of premiums if you like to or receive a gift for your donation. You're more than welcome to do that. We do know that most of you donate uh, to free radio, to free speech radio, and uh, you don't care about the gift, but that's up to you. You can also donate for, if you donate $100 or more, you can request the screener and password for my documentary feature film, Motherland. So uh, whoever you talk to when you call in or when you do it online, uh, just ask for the screener for Motherland. KPFK.org. You can use PayPal. You can use a credit card. Whatever you can give, we really appreciate. $1,000, $500, $10. Please, we really need it. Uh, Vic, before your interview with Senator Smallwood, how about a let's get blunt? Let's get blunt. Yeah, so it's time to get blunt about the hypocrisy and double standard of the world, as well as our own nation and our president, President Biden and Secretary Blinken, when it comes to the suffering of people around the world. Some genocides, some atrocities, some wars we choose to care for, and others we just ignore. Now, President Biden recognized the Armenian Genocide in 2021. He was the first uh, American president to do so formally because President Reagan did it informally in 1981. And uh, it's important to say that President Biden recognized it in 2021 because in 2019, both the House and the Senate had recognized the Armenian Genocide. The Senate did it unanimously and the House was near unanimous. So he, uh, you know, he became president and he fulfilled his promise to recognize the Armenian genocide, which was a great thing. But then a week later, he and Secretary Blinken decided to lift Section 907 of the Freedom Act, which states that the U.S. will not give any financial support to a nation for any war or aggression against another nation, you know, including their neighbors. But as we all know, uh, Azerbaijan had just invaded the Republic of Artsakh, massacred over 5,000 people. So what is the point of recognizing the Armenian genocide if a week later you're going to lift Section 907, give 100 million taxpayer money to Azerbaijan, a nation that does not need money from anyone because they have unlimited uh, income from their oil and gas industries, and facilitate another Armenian genocide, because make no bones about it, another Armenian genocide or the continuation of the Armenian genocide is happening now, right now, 
in real time as we speak, because Azerbaijan has for the last four plus months blocked the only road from Artsakh to Armenia and the rest of the world, hence uh, holding hostage 120,000 Armenians without food, medicine, uh, cutting off their gas and electricity and internet as the world watches in deafening silence. And those that do speak, it's not loud enough. So this is what's happening now. It's been good to see that President Biden has been firm uh, about the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But how about the invasion of Artsakh by Azerbaijan? What is the difference there? It's the same exact thing. So it's hypocrisy. It's a double standard. And we have to hold accountable President Biden, uh, Secretary Blinken, and all other politicians who use this kind of double standard. And it's, you know, essentially insult people because, you know, we can't have one policy for Ukraine and another one for Artsakh or another one for Ethiopia or Yemen uh, and all other nations. Uh, I do understand it's, you know, it's a self-interest and such. But then uh, we cannot get on soapboxes and talk about human rights and democracy and doing the right thing uh, because uh, that's not what's happening now on the 108th anniversary of the Armenian genocide. So there you go. (laughs) Let's keep getting blunt. Let's get blunt. Before we go into break, uh, do you mind telling us just a little bit about Senator Smallwood? What you took away from it? Yeah, so Senator Lola Smallwood Cuevas is a, a new state senator, California, from 28th District. Uh, she has a very diverse, very profound background in many different uh, industries. And, uh, you know, she's a progressive and uh, she's doing some great work for her district, which is very large uh, right here in greater L.A. Um, and so... Yeah, let's take a listen to my interview. Senator Lola Smallwood Cuevas was elected in 2020, representing the California State Senate, District 28, which includes the communities of Ladera Heights, Baldwin Hills, Century City, Cheviot Hills, Crenshaw, Downtown, Mar Vista, Mid-City, South L.A., and West LA. After earning a degree from the California State University at Hayward, uh, the senator started her career in journalism. Uh, Later as an educator, labor and community organizer, she founded the Black Workers Center. Her work uh, has been recognized nationally by uh, former President Barack Obama, uh, Labor Secretary Tom Perez, and many others. Uh, Prior to entering California Senate, she served as the treasurer of the Los Angeles County Workforce Development Board and holds various leadership positions within civic organizations. Good morning, Senator Smallwood Cuevas. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post uh, with Vic this morning. How are you today? Doing well. Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to uh, getting to know you and uh, all that you do and your immense background. Uh, and now uh, uh, an elected official, a public servant. Um, so let's go right into it. You do, as I said, you have a very diverse background in uh, in terms of your career and your specialties and, and your expertise. Uh, you've been a labor organizer, a journalist, which you know I particularly like. 
You also co-founded the LA Black Worker Center, uh, where you worked to increase access to quality jobs, reduce employment discrimination, and improve uh, industries that employ Black workers uh, through action and uh, unionization. Another thing I like. What made you decide to transition to uh, public office? Well, thank you so much uh, for that question, and also for for doing that background. Um, as a as a former journalist, I really respect those who get at the truth every day to give everyone um, in our community the tools that they need to govern um, and co-govern um, with elected officials. Um, so I just really appreciate um, your work. So what what inspired, motivated? created this opportunity there there it's sort of an overlapping answer there um i really see this work as an evolution of movement you talked about the work that i i did as a journalist telling stories of communities um that too often were were not heard and seeing journalism as a way to get at the truth to help improve conditions for those folks, folks, you know, like my mom, I was raised by a single mother. She worked so hard and so many in our communities and too often their voices were missing. Um, and that was part of my motivation for journalism. And then I got the opportunity to, to, in that moment to realize that I also was a worker. When I came out of journalism school, the industry was collapsing all around me. Um, a lot of the corporate interest in our first amendment disappearing newspapers all over the country. And I came out of journalism school just as that was happening. And I was blessed to be a part of a union, to know that I was in a union and I could fight for my job. And that was my first real engagement and exposure in worker rights where folks in the print room and the news desk reporters came together to demand justice in our industry. Uh, But unfortunately with so many pressures on the industry, there were very few jobs And I ended up doing some research work with the Service Employees Union that introduced me directly to organizing. And I never looked back. Um, The opportunity to organize with with workers um, coming together collectively to change their wages and working conditions. So I, I say that those experiences motivated me to and those individuals that I've had the opportunity to work alongside of. Um, both in the organizing at SCIU and later in building California's first Black Worker Center, to say that um, our government has to truly uh, reflect the needs of our communities and to prioritize those needs. And I've had the opportunity to work at the grassroots level of our communities um, and to say that that voice, the most impacted communities, deserve to have a voice in our government and to see how our solutions and strategies, um, our power can be felt there. And so uh, from talking to a lot of workers, <laughs> union leaders, community leaders, um, and in particular, I wanna lift up uh, the Congresswoman Sydney Kamlager, mm-hmm. who came to me because she was the only black woman at the time in the California State Senate Um, And she obviously and I are part of a very progressive, strong black women leadership, womanist leadership in that in that district and in that seat. She came to me and said, I really want to have a strong, progressive black woman to step 
into this opportunity uh, to be part of my legacy in the state Senate. And I knew given who had been in that race, who was uh, in the race, that if I didn't enter into the race, we would not have that voice. And so between recognizing um, the importance of having strong leadership um, in what is now the 28th district, uh, used to be the 30th district, now it's the 28th due to redistricting, the right. numbers changed. Between that legacy and the people that I have worked and organized alongside of saying this is the time for strong progressive leadership, be part of the arc bending towards justice. And we need justice fighters in that space. And so it's an honor to be tapped to run for this seat. It is an honor to have organized with institutions and individuals who share a common vision um, and to then step you know, into this, into this opportunity. Wow, thank you for that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with California State Senator Lola Smallwood Cuevas. That was very thorough, and it made my next question kind of irrelevant because you answered it. I was going to ask you if it's fair, considering your background, uh, to call you a progressive. And obviously it is, and you are a proud progressive. You know, every every four years, we say this is the most important election of our lifetime, usually meaning the presidential election, not midterm. And uh, it's kind of been true every four years. And I think in 2024, we're going to come to that crossroads again. However, this past November, uh, I think in my perspective, was was a very pivotal year or pivotal election for L.A. County, greater L.A. And we saw a lot of a uh, lot of movement, especially a lot of wins for the uh, progressives. What's your perspective on the state of our city, which Mayor Bass just delivered, not necessarily just her speech, but just the state of Los Angeles, uh, as well as your District 28th, uh, where you stand. So I think what's at stake right now, we're at a crossroads. Um, we are at a crossroads. I don't need to explain to my constituents because they certainly understood where we are as a as a county, as a city, as a region, state, country. Um, that we have a decision about how we're going to move forward. My view is that um, we have to resist, contest, reject this notion that as we move toward a people of color majority and alliance, as we move toward a dynamic alliance across gender, uh, racial background, and coming into the majority of our state, that now we can't provide our communities with good jobs that allow them to build generational wealth. I reject that as we have this new majority, we can't have clean drinking water and clean air. I reject that now that we have this new majority that we can't figure out how to house everyone. And I think this election um, in terms of who was elected at every level and particularly in LA County, when we think about Holly Mitchell in the second district, when we think about Sidney Kamlocker in Congress, when we think about uh, Mayor Bass at the city, when we think about Lola Smallwood Cuevas at the state, what I see is a common 
commitment belief that this is the time for our new majority alliance to create a California in a vision that we see and in a joint rejection and contestation of these beliefs that are for the 21st century that our best years are behind us. We absolutely reject that. I think across this leadership spectrum, which is a reflection of the voters, is a reflection of the voters' understanding of what's at stake, what crossroads we're at, but also the commitment to the vision ahead that the years are better. And so, you know, what is at stake is a 24, 20th century tug on the future. You know, these old arguments, the, the institutionalized racism, sexism, uh, xenophobia, uh, gender bias and discrimination, racial, uh, religious hatred. You know, these are the tugs of the 20th century that are trying to hold us back. And I think that this is a leadership. Progressive means we, we want, we're going to cut. We got to cut the ties because we have so much work to do in the 21st century. We don't have time to fight the same old fights. And um, I think these abortion rights, rollbacks are an example of these 20th century ties that really want to hold us back and keep us tied to old arguments that do not allow us to move forward, but force us to go deeper and deeper into chaos, deeper and deeper into instability, um, and truly uh, put the whole society, our whole planet at risk in the 21st century. I'm not about extinction. <laughs> I'm about moving forward. Um, I'm about us recognizing the hopes of the 21st century and beyond for the next generation and how we begin to build the real uh, foundation for what that future could look like. Look, I was in a debate last week over sick leave and whether we should as a state go from three days to, to six days of, of sick leave. In committee, I just said, we our economy is about to take over the German economy. And in Germany, they have six weeks of paid sick leave. <laughs> so if we are a global competitor, we've got to make sure that the folks that are allowing us to compete are taken care of. That is how you grow. That is how you continue um, to sustain our productivity, but also the folks who are producing the productivity and the wealth and that they can share in it in terms of being able to take care of themselves and their families. We shouldn't be arguing over things about whether people should work sick. We should yeah. not be arguing over a woman has a right to choose what to do with her reproductive system. We should not uh, be fighting over workers, not having basic protections against wage theft, discrimination in the workplace. In this point in our history, we should be building a resilient economy, leading the world on how to take care of families, how to take care of our, our planet, and how to take care of a future um, for next generation. So, you know, I, I know that's a long <laughs> answer to your question, but I think that's the crossroad. As you talk about 2024, that's the big, that's the big conversation. That's the big debate. How and when do we move forward? And when do we let these old, mm -hmm. deeply rooted, ancient arguments finally and, and once and for all end them so we can move forward?
This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with California State Senator Lola Smallwood Cuevas. Yeah, and I agree with a lot of what you said. Uh, there's, there's bad news and good news. The bad news is nationally, of course, some of the most unfathomable things have happened, right? I mean, the reversal of Roe versus Wade, this sort of single topic that has been chosen to be like a weaponized the anti-trans stance that some states and elected officials have taken uh, in order to sort of uh, rally their base. So nationally, unfortunately, we've we've reverted back a lot. Um, I think a lot of it came during the Trump administration. But the good news is that we have a strong state. The good news is that we have a strong LA. We have a we have a mayor who's rolled up her sleeves and is just tackling things uh, left and right. So I think there was, you're right. I mean, this there was a there was a lot of progress, double entendre intended made uh, in this last election, and and we can see the effects right now. I mean. I think I'm hearing more about union, the word union in conversations now, than I have in many years prior to that. I want to go to one of, or I I should say, uh, the the top priority for Mayor Karen Bass, whom I've interviewed on the show, um, because, you know, your district is not like any, it's typical of any other district, right? We have a lot of unhoused. We have a massive challenge. Uh, It's not a challenge that can be fixed in uh, a year or one term or one elected official. Uh, And nonetheless, it's, uh, it affects all of us. What do you think about the way that uh, Mayor Bass is sort of handling very aggressively the, the unhoused and making sure that there's housing for um, all that want to be housed? Well, I think the mayor's done a phenomenal job. And, you know, the mayor is a strategist. The mayor is an organizer. The mayor is about systemic change. Uh, And the mayor understands that these things don't happen overnight. But when we have a plan and a strategy and we have all of the stakeholders at the table and we are aligned around a common vision and a common strategy and goal, there's nothing that cannot be transformed. And I, you know, I I think the mayor comes from that stock. She's lived that throughout her life as an organizer. And she's been a part of seeing what folks said could not be happened happen, including, you know, her being the first Black woman uh, and mayor of Los Angeles. So, you know, I, I applaud the mayor. I, I Very few um, mayors make those kinds of commitments. And certainly every day that I've gotten from the media, heard the day-by-day updates on, on what she is doing, um, I, I am all, I am, I am proud and I am a supporter. And I am part of uh, the solution table, right, for this, because I think the mayor's approach is one that we all subscribe to and I think is part of our leadership model, both particularly folks who come out of community organizing. No one person can do anything. Um, It's the collective power and the more dynamic, meaning different voices, unusual suspects who are at the table, the more impact and change 
we can make. And so, you know, the mayor uh, has come to uh, the state and had many conversations bringing different uh, folks together. I know she's meeting with, you know, local uh, mayors and stakeholders. Um, she's meeting, you know, obviously with the with a very broad spectrum of housing and homelessness advocates, developers, um, uh, unions, right? Because, you know, part of this equation is creating, you know, the infrastructure, material housing, but it's also, you know, the mental health services. And it's also the actual jobs, the income and equality we have to address in order for folks to stay in and afford the housing um, and access to retain that, right? So I think her strategy of bringing tables together to align vision and strategies and resources to put them intentionally on the problem uh, is 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 important. And at the state level, we've got to make sure that the res resources are protected. We have to make sure that we are uh, working uh, collaboratively and in alignment with our city and county officials to ensure that the resources for homelessness services, the resources for housing policies that um, remove corporate interest out of our housing, that allow us to move forward with investing in real uh, public housing, uh, the policies that help us have real rent control, uh, the, the, the policies that help us help you know, uh, the mom and pop apartment owners um, be able to be contributors to solutions around these um, issues. It's the big table with alignment and strategies that are important. And I see that that's my role at the state level to support that and to see where are there opportunities for us to think outside of the box that help us get to the issue of addressing housing, but also those underneath root cause issues that we have to take on and address. And for me, that is access to quality jobs, access uh, to uh, worker housing, um, access to uh, being able to provide the resources that allow every Californian to have access to the basic needs. Um, and having a roof over your head and for your family is a basic need, it is a right. How do we make sure that we are supporting and developing policies that yeah. allow residents to, 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 to have that? Yeah. One, one out of eight American lives in uh, California. So we're, we're talking about a lot of people. It's no easy task. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with California State Senator Lola Smallwood Cuevas. Let's go a little bit deeper. I mean, I I love that you you really thoroughly explained all the different um, elements. You know, the most the most pressing ones that are really in the minds of of our elected officials, yourself and and Mayor Bass as well. In terms of specifically, you recently introduced legislation uh, to protect displaced workers. Uh, you proposed an impactful twenty twenty three bill package. Uh, will you tell us about that and also? What are we to expect for the rest of 2023 from you or if our, if you're talking to your constituents? So I have a very aggressive uh, bill packet and um, and I want to make sure I get you all of the list of bills because I have over I have 16 bills that I'm moving and I want to make sure you all have 
the exact names and numbers of those bills so that we can um, track them together. But my main, my bill package is really at the intersections of economic equity and racial equity and protecting folks' opportunity to be able to access and be retained in good jobs. So, you know, my first bill is SB 16. It's a bill that uh, was sponsored uh, by the Service Employees Union and Black Workers Center in 2018 and 19, and we did not get the governor's signature. And that was the first bill that I put over the desk when I was uh, sworn in on December 5th. And that is that we need local employment discrimination enforcement at the city and county level. We need our state, county, and city entities to work together, our civil rights offices, to protect workers against racial discrimination, against uh, criminal history discrimination, against gender discrimination, um, and where it happens. We cannot rely on one state entity to do it all. We've got to bring in local and county forces to put more boots on the ground, to investigate more of these cases, to bring more of these claims and to create more remedy. So that's SB 16, it's an important bill. It's really transforming the way we do employment discrimination protections in the state of California. The, the second bill that I'm working on is my anti-retaliation bill. We, we create a lot of laws and you know that's great for, for me coming into the policy making space. We need to make sure that we have laws on the books, but if workers cannot realize them, if communities cannot actually get protected by them, then the laws are meaningless. So what we are proposing in the anti-retaliation bill is to say that if a worker does file an equal pay violation or wage theft complaint, um, if they report a discrimination complaint, that uh, a employer cannot then turn around and start um, harassing them with disciplinary uh, write-ups, um, threatening them for transfer, threatening to fire them, um, that that is called retaliation. And this bill says that an employer cannot retaliate within 90 days of a complaint uh, and if they do begin to create a pattern that looks like retaliation, they have to prove that they are not retaliating. In the past, that uh, rebuttable presumption was on the worker. The worker had to improve the employer intent. That should not be the worker's Makes sense. role. It's the employer's role. So we, we are fighting for that bill. Um, the second bill is displacement. Right now, you mentioned unions. And what I see unions are, it's, it's workers' collective power. It's worker voice in the workplace. Unions give workers some control and say over their wages and working conditions. And we need that voice in the workplace. But what employers are doing now, what we're finding is that employers of large national companies that have more than 100 stores, they will close a store in order to stop workers from using their voice. My anti-displacement bill says, that if you decide to close a store, you have to notify the workers in the community within 60 days. You have to also make sure that those workers are transferred to a nearby store and that they have an opportunity to continue to work. We cannot afford to have companies remove workers from our sales tax base and from our income tax base. That is breaking the partnership between community and business. 
And when you close your doors, it doesn't just hurt the worker. It hurts our community. It hurts our budget. It makes it harder for us to provide the services that our communities need. So we want to make sure that workers are not displaced uh, and that we hold companies accountable uh, to ensuring that workers in California keep working. Um, and that's my my anti-displacement. That, that's actually very important because I, th something like that happened with Starbucks. Uh, it's happened with Amazon. That's uh, right. Two companies that are very aggressively going against uh, unions and, and uh, trying to combat unionizing by uh, different uh, stores and operations. So that's, I mean, even the one before that about retaliation, that's so important uh, because it happens all the time. Um, for the um, sake of time only, um, I, I want to ask you a, sort of a little bit of a general question, if I may. Unless, did you want to mention another really important bill? Well, the one other important bill I want to mention is uh, Proposition 47. So this is a, a, a very hard fought bill uh, law that the people of California passed um, that basically says that our incarceration system, uh, the, the war on the poor, war on drugs, however you want to think about it, has disproportionately impacted certain communities. And this bill was passed to say that these nonviolent substance abuse disorder uh, felonies need to be reduced to misdemeanors so that when folks come out of prison, they actually have an opportunity to, to re-enter and have an opportunity to contribute to their communities. Um, um, in, when this bill was first adopted by, this law was adopted by voters, Prop 47, um, it, it had a sunset on it. And we are we're removing the application deadline. We think that, that being able to repair the harm of the war, war on drugs on communities of color means that people need time to go through the process to be able to reduce those uh, nonviolent drugs, uh, substance abuse disorder felonies uh, to misdemeanors. So I just wanted to mention yeah. that because there's a lot of resistance to that, but uh, we know it took a long time to build this, the country's uh, largest uh, system of incarceration, and it's gonna take a long time for us to ensure that folks most impacted um, by by that system negatively uh, are made whole. And so let's yeah. remove that deadline. Another very important uh, bill, uh, going against the prison industrial complex. That's what happens when you uh, privatize prisons. It, there's an incentive for these corporations that own these prisons that make hundreds of millions from the government to, to see that people are in prison. I mean, can you think that now you, you walk around LA and people are just smoking marijuana, right? It's legal, nothing wrong with it. That we've put people in prison for years and years and years because they were caught with a joint. And, right. and these people's lives were changed and their families changed. And then when they come out, what I like about, one of the things I like about your bill is we need to give them a real fighting chance to get jobs good jobs. And it's really important to really right size what they did and bring it down to a misdemeanor so that it doesn't haunt them for the rest of their lives. Otherwise, who are we serving? How That's is right. it serving anyone or society or our city or state? So uh, thank you for that. Um, I just I just wonder as as I mean, you know, ideally, you don't want this to even be a question it should be like a non issue. But as a as a as a woman, and as a woman of color, do you feel like there's extra pressure on you? 
you know, to extra pressure on you on one hand to perform. And then also you have to work twice, three times harder to get the same equal respect of your um, non-woman, uh, non-person uh, of color counterparts. That's right. Uh, it is. And, and we know <laughs> whether any institution, whether you're dealing with the labor market, whether you're dealing with the education system, whether you're dealing with the state, capital and government, women and black people. And when you have two of these identities, uh, you carry a lot of, of weight um, on your on your shoulders because you are uh, fighting against overlapping intersectional uh, barriers that many of the colleagues that you're working with don't understand because they have never walked in your shoes. They've never lived that experience. They've never felt the micro and macro aggressions. You know, I've had to already file a workplace conduct unit complaint because you know, as a black woman, I won't allow uh, my colleagues to to disrespect me or violate my civil rights. And I believe in whether it's the Crown Act. In this instance, my complaint was about the Crown Act, and I had to make sure that my colleagues understood there was a law protecting my head, and that you should not touch my head in any sh way, shape, or form. It's a shame that I, as a legislator, would have to file that kind of a complaint. But in fact, it's because I'm a black woman. Um, it's because historically uh, white men could touch me anytime they wanted to because I was not protected or seen as a human being. And those are the kinds of deeply rooted complex issues that as a black woman lawmaker, I have to carry every day. I, I talk about walking into the Capitol and seeing these you know, beautiful floor to ceiling wall paintings, oil paintings of these very rich, rich, wealthy white men, which says this institution was not designed for me. And it really is the voters. It is the hopes and dreams of the slave. It is, you know, my mother. It is the new majority that is committed to a brighter day and a brighter future for California, who have made my existence in that building not only necessary, but inescapable. And we need more and more folks from communities, particularly impacted communities, to step into the space so that we ensure that we are creating an institution that truly reflects California. Uh, so, you know, as a Black woman, there is a lot of pressure, but we were born into this pressure. Uh, we carry the pressure from our ancestors. We carry that responsibility, but with also the resilience, also the sense of deep love, of self-care that gives us a reservoir to continue to fight for justice and what we know is, is right. And um, it, it is a, a value that I see reflected to me in the mirror. Um, it, it's a value that I see reflected in the women uh, LGBTQ plus community, uh, Jewish community, immigrant rights community, all of the groups that are fighting for justice. So, you know, I want to say I'm grateful for the this uh, complex and intersectional identity that I have, um, because it does give me that superpower um, to be able to recognize where there's opportunity for real justice to take hold and to transform.
Indeed. Wow. Thank you. Senator uh, Smallwood Cuevas, uh, is there a question I should have asked that I missed or anything you'd like to add? The one thing I want to add, you know, I'm, I'm in a place where uh, one corporation can have 50 lobbyists, one business, yep. and our people's voices are not heard enough. So I just want to mm -hmm. thank you for uh, dedicating time to this discussion and connecting me uh, with more of uh, Southern California and particularly my constituents. We need your voices in Sacramento. If you are not part of an organization that is focused on policy, whether it's Planned Parenthood, whether it's the Black Worker Center, uh, whether it's your union, um, whether it's KPFK, get involved, join an organization, help us bring our voices into the Capitol. As I said, we do not do this alone. I hope that I can share uh, my bill package with you. I don't know if you have a website, but I'd love to put more details about the bills that we are moving uh, in our campaign to elevate Absolutely. the to elevate E28 is our campaign Um really want grassroots efforts to get involved in helping us get these progressive policies over the finish line. Um, we need our own 50 folks representing our interests every day in yeah. the Capitol. It reminds uh, we me can of, only do that together. Pardon me. It reminds me of, I don't know whose quote it is, who said, uh, if you don't do politics, politics will do you. That's so, right. That's right. That's when you right. gave a shout out to people to get involved, it reminds me of that. Well, Senator, thank you very much. I'm super grateful that you were able to uh, chat uh, and, uh, you know, get get really into it unfiltered. I really appreciate your time. I hope we can uh, chat again as I will be following you and following uh, all the other great progressives in our in our city of angels. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to your listeners. And let's win together. Thank you. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. -E Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.